so I'd like to thank everybody for joining us at uh, one, uh, one, one of our most important panels. This is the traditional analyst panel. Our event is uh, geared towards uh, investors, financiers, shareholders, um, presenting the global maritime community to them, and of course, to the rest of the industry. So the analyst panel is always a big hit. Uh, having with us the combined wisdom of all the major analysts. So thank you to uh, Omar, to Ben, to James, to Jorgen and Randy for being with us. And of course, thank you to Hugh for uh, taking on the great task of moderating it. Actually, we, we think it's a great idea to have a ship owner moderate um, the analyst panel. So with that, I will turn it over to, uh, to Hugh and thank you to everybody. Yeah. Uh, not not just a, a ship owner, but a private ship owner. So it means there will be less sucking up than there than there would be if I were a, <laughs> if I were a, a, maybe a publicly traded company. Um, and on that note, I I, I won't. Uh, I think that the people here are, are well known. As uh, Nick said, they they rep represent um, some of the leading houses. And and actually, so maybe I'd like to start. Uh, I think with with Omar. Uh, and I'm going to set this up a little bit and say that I'm going to try to avoid going through, you know, what are your picks, what are your calls, and, and um, you know, take a, a little bit of a step back. And so I think, you know, Omar, I'm not sure how many years you've been here. It goes back to Dalman Rose days, I think. Um, so you've, you've, you've really seen the, the history of, of, um, of this sector in, in the public markets. And I think, you know, it's a sector that, you know, went through a boom period and then a period where a lot was thrown, um, people saying investors didn't like it because it's, it's opaque, it's, um, you know, it's too much self-dealing, there are, you know, a lot of sketchy practices. And I think the sector itself has cleaned itself up really well. Most of the public companies now, I, I think at least, are, are really quite well run. Management teams are very, very um, uh, professional, they're financially sophisticated, they're trying to make smart decisions for the most part with capital allocation and treating their investors properly. I see that. Um, but it's still a really challenged environment. And, you know, most of the stocks have performed poorly. Uh, it's very hard to raise capital. And there's, um, uh, you know, not in with a couple of small exceptions, really enough, enough liquidity or volume here. So with that as a, as a, as a happy standpoint, what, what do you see you know, what, what can a shipping company do as a next step? Um, or is it, is it really just a matter of, of being a bit of a slave to the market and, uh, and you know, bumping along waiting for better times? That's uh, interesting. Uh, thanks, Hugh. Yeah, you know, I think you're, you're right. The sector's really traded at a, um, you know, across the board um, at a big discount, you know, relative to historical norms, whether it's on price to NAV, or you know, price to earnings ratios if you plug in some sort of normal steady state uh, spot rate or charter rate. Um, but I think, I guess, taking a step back, the problem is that since the financial crisis, the shipping sector has just had a very tough time at generating positive returns. Um, and it takes, if we look at tankers, for example, it's taken extraordinary events like you know, the oil price crash in 2014 or Costco sanctions last year, uh, floating storage this year, um, it's taken that type of event to get meaningful return. And so, you know, aside from that, basically, tankers have had a really tough time um, generating uh, a return that meets our cost of capital. And that's been the same across all different other conventional uh, segments. So it's sort of like, 
you know, just like charter rates have been low, making vessel purchases not that attractive. Um, equities themselves, uh, they're not generating enough cash either to justify that NAV, so hence the, the discount. Now, having said all that, I think you can simply say that the large-scale overbuild that we started to started to see at the end of the, the early 2000s, you know, that's the root cause of all this. So when we think about the next decade, obviously it's taken 10, 12 years to work through a lot of this excess supply against a bit more of a moderate uh, demand uh, outlook. Um, and so there, there is promise. And so what, what should companies do? I think ultimately it's, it's, a, it's a broad question of, you know, you stay the course, you focus on what you can control. The reason why we trade at a big discount to NAV is ultimately the lack of earnings power. And if you look at tankers, the past 11, 12 years, you've really only had three or four where you've had a positive return. Dry bulk, zero. Uh, containers, not that much. Uh, LNG, LPG, each of those two or three years. And so it hasn't been a sector that's generated positive return. And once that starts to happen, these companies should start to get valued more appropriately. So I think then maybe let me just throw this out as a show of hands in the, in the panel then, because I think you, you, you hinted on something that uh, there was a article yesterday from a, a you know, different Norwegian um, sort of boutique bank, you know, claiming that the next decade was was shaping up really to be um, to be strong for the, the the reasons the sort of macro reasons you're talking about, Omar, uh, which were that it's just taken that long to finally, you know, be rid of the overordering of kind of the early mid two thousands. Um, who who here on the panel actually believes that let's say within some period within the next year you could be making a real long-term positive call. What's your definition of long-term? Well, <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, first you all have to have 12 month targets, but, right. but it fe feels to me like most of you are, are, are sort of relegated to trading buys and tactical buys and things because it's been, you know, the, the, the booms have been so short-lived. Do you, do, you, do you think that that's the way things are gonna continue for the next, period where you're really going to have to keep, you know, keep your clients informed daily. You know, Jorgen, you, you sent out a daily chart pack, you know, with uh, like, you know, do investors really need to see every day what happened to that day to know whether they need to sell their positions? Uh, I think uh, if, if I can, if I can jump in, I, you, I think it's a fair point uh, looking at the, uh, we traditionally have the 12-month price target and trying to look a bit ahead. Um, uh, however, you know, I, I think I think having a, a more long-term view on, on markets and stocks uh, from our side is reasonable. Um, and especially as you've been talking about considering the liquidity in the shares at the moment. Um, so let's let's leave sort of forecasting the the black swans and and the daily swings perhaps more to the interested uh, day traders and rather try to make sense of world where the world is is moving in the medium to long term i think that's that's a that's a fair stance to have uh, as an equity analyst it's a cyclical business uh, so trying to time the cycles is what we're after and uh, not necessarily all the noise we get along the way um, so I'm not saying that makes it much easier, uh, but definitely uh, I think more relevant uh, to, to, to those investors who, who are looking to, to build the stake and, and be exposed over time to the, to the industry. Yeah, yeah I'll, um, I'll answer it by saying I'm fairly confident the next five years will be better than the previous five years, right? So if you, if you allow me to say five years is long term, um, yeah. I'm bullish. 
I, I think that's what I'm looking for. It would be, can, you know, a point where you can recommend to somebody, this asset class should be, uh, you know, it's never going to be a core part of a, of, you know, of, a, of a holding, but should be something you should be in and you can add or trim, but you really want to stick in it. And maybe James, I'll go to you because I think you're conspicuous here um, as representing a firm that isn't a boutique firm or a specialist firm. And I, um, I, I, I made a, a joke, Randy, just before you, uh, you know, I was listening to your last panel and when you got to the obligatory consolidation question, I moved into the waiting room for this. But I was saying, you know, the, the consolidation, you know, has happened, all these analysts have asked the question and it's really happened to the analysts. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the larger firms, um, you know, have, have, I think, decided this isn't a core part of what they do. So here we generally have, you know, firms focused on shipping or energy um, or, you know, who have developed some kind of a franchise. Um, James, I mean, what, what do you, you know, what do you say over at, at City or, a, you know, a bulge bar bracket firm or to your, your client base about this sector? Well, I'd also point out that I don't think it's necessarily completely unique to shipping. I think a lot of sectors are <laughs> yeah. together, right? Uh, and there's more, like, there's larger coverage teams with greater responsibility in general. But not to skip ahead and sort of like the line of reasoning, but like a lot of shipping is essentially cyclical and has these valuation trends around supply and demand. And there aren't like necessarily stocks with as tremendous of narratives everywhere, right? And if you look at like our coverage overall, there's places where there's very strong stories that are sort of company specific. And I think that seemingly attracts investors on a like relative basis about where to put the incremental dollar. And so when you look at shipping, I think if there, when there are like very strong stories, the people do become interested. I think containers is one, a good example now. It's just that these stories are relatively short-lived and involved around like very short pricing cycles. If there's something longer term that you were talking about, about like supply aging out, that could get, get people more interested, definitely. But I think it's just like within our coverage, there's just such a fragmented market that not necessarily there aren't as many like great stories about specific stocks yep. the way there are in other places within our coverage. Got it. Um, so if we, um, and I, I know we're, we're jumping around a little bit here, but let's think about that, a positive, you know, positive macro stories um, or, um, and, uh, you know, it was mentioned on your panel just now, you know, Randy, like some, sometimes the positive macro stories don't seem to exactly pan out. The, the positive story around product tankers a few years ago and the moving of, of refineries, um, you know, the, and, and sometimes it's, it's because of overbuilding coming in. There have been positive stories on LPG, on LNG, on, on you know, different um, sectors that, that have, have struggled a bit. Um, so as, as you as look forward, you know, James, you, you think you think containerization is a is still a, a positive a positive sort of macro trend? Do, are you concerned about reshoring and a and a halt in the long term trend of globalization? No, actually, we sort of think about it more along the lines of not reshoring but multi-shoring and sort of trade routes becoming more complex, maybe increasing ton miles. I think that's sort of the house view on that. But in terms of but then again, from that, it's not necessarily the like mega or the multi-year mega trend. A lot of the most volatile and significant adjustments are more short-term in nature, and that's I think where I, investors sort of get very 
excited or more interested in the space, but it's only on those like short-term catalysts, not necessarily the longer-term ones that you sort of would hope for that we see some other places. So it's almost like it's almost like the sector sometimes is just a slave to the macroeconomic drivers that it comes across and the fact that those are just short-term. But yeah, here, direct question, like when we think about it, we do think see the we do see like multi-shoring, but that's like a slow and long burn, not necessarily a like fierce reset that can really drive near-term upside. Sure. Um, how, how about you, Ben? I know, I think you're, you're not, you've been a little bit like skeptical about some of the, just the, the traditional, uh, you know, dry and I'd call it sort of the carbon sectors, the, the coal and the, uh, and the, and the oil-based. Do, do you see any like really sort of, interesting trends that somebody could uh, could you know take and watch and and you know invest into in the next five years yeah I mean I, I it's tough I, I I think you look at all of the various aspects uh, you know whether it's tankers or dry bulk or um, maybe even containers uh, as James was talking about and th there's no um, th there's hopefully going to be some rebound, um, but it's hard to really have strong conviction, at least in, in my view, that global trade in any of those categories is going to materially be on the rise uh, other than other than a short-term rebound. Uh, in, in energy related things, there is um, the, the risk of renewables or alternative energy that eats into anything that touches carbon. And certainly that's true of coal and we've seen that for years and, uh, and potentially it's true of oil. Um, and containers, again, uh, I, I would tend to agree with, with James's view of a multi-shoring, but still, unquestionably, the the pace of growth is not what it ha is is unlikely to be what it has been over the last twenty years. So, it does lend itself very much to this view that um, you uh, it, it is a cyclical trading business, um, and. Um, and, and there's all sorts of other potential corollaries. You can go look at tobacco or other industries where it's, they're not really growth industries, but that doesn't mean they're, they're never good times to buy them. Um, mm -hmm. There are, and if you time it well, you can do well. But I, I think the idea that, you know, that, that shipping is going to be a 10 year buy and hold is, um, you know, uh, maybe not yeah. something that ever works. Yeah, yeah, and I've, I've said it before, in shipping, it is not time in the market, it's timing the market, absolutely. It is not a buy this and five years later, just look at your screen. You can't wait five years, right? It's gotta be a much shorter cycle. Sure. And do you, uh, structurally, let's say, you know, especially maybe, you know, a couple of, a couple of you guys there have, you know, have significant, um, you know, high net worth networks or something. Is there a structural product? Uh, you know, I think MLPs, you know, came and, and, you know, then, you know, had some headwinds in the energy side and there were some shipping MLP style. Uh, it mostly haven't done terribly well either. Um, is, is there some kind of a product as you guys are talking with investors or with banks or can you see, you know, something that, that actually would be appropriate and appeal for a, a, re, a high net worth retail or just a normal retail investor who isn't, a, you know, the Seeking Alpha or Robin Hood day trader. 
I think well, Omar is a high net worth individual. <laughs> That's right. Maybe this question's for you. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a good question you bring up. I haven't really thought of that, but what I would say is maybe similar to that line is I think diversification of the asset, I think is really key. You know, it's easier for, and I've talked about this publicly in, in, in other conferences and, and Capital Link as well, you know, it's much easier for hedge funds to invest in a company when they know it's an exclusive play, whether it's on CAPES or VLTCs or whatnot. But as management, you're going up and down with the cycles, exposing yourself, and, and are really losing touch as a result of that with mutual funds. Um, and uh, oh, Omar, sorry to interrupt you. You're, you're breaking. Your, maybe speak closer to the microphone. Sorry for that. Apologies. Did you catch any of what I was saying? I, 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 I yeah. told half of it. Okay. So what I was just simply saying that, you know, the, there, it's always been exclusivity on the assets. It's always easier for hedge funds to focus on pure plays, whether they're BLs or, or whatnot. And as a management, when you, when you have that type of asset, you're, you're sort of going up and down with the cycle. Um, and, and, and really, you, you lose the ability to interact with mutual funds and get them as a large investor in your stock. And those mutual funds tend to focus more on management strategy, the credentials that they have, the track record. Um, and they're not necessarily so focused on investing in an asset type. It's really about the management strategy. And so we've seen companies generating big globs of cash in certain years over the past you know, decade or so. And they've either given it back to shareholders, paid down debt, um, but they've also bought the same assets that they have now. And, and so if they were to take that cash and diversify a bit more, you can ride out the cycles more comfortably. And I think that's that's probably one of the biggest things that's been missing for the sector and why they, it, it, it trades at a big discount is it's just too many pure play companies attracting hedge funds and not enough diversification attracting mutual funds. Well, right, I, I want somebody to take an opposite I'll, view on that because I, I bet there's, I, I can't believe that's a consensus across the board. I want to go back to your previous question, and then maybe I'll okay. I'll answer that. Uh, I mean, uh, clearly, part of our business model at Stiefel is the wealth management side. It's the biggest part of our business, and um, I would tell you that we've we've done pretty well over the years uh, finding pockets of capital for individuals who don't want the high end risk portion of the curve who aren't going to be day trading some of these stocks, but in companies where there is good cash flow visibility and the balance sheets aren't over levered, um, if you can be positioned somewhere higher in the capital structure, whether that's in a preferred instrument or a debt instrument, um, you can get pretty good returns because the cost of equity the common equity can be pretty high and uh, for, for a lot of operators. And so I, I think, or just creating structured instruments so that people can get an 8% yield or something like that uh, with a, a preferred credit position is certainly possible. And, uh, and we have not, we've not had any of those instruments uh, break on us, fortunately, <laughs> knock on wood. Yeah. But um, so, and, and we've done dozens of them. Um, so they, and, and, you know, I can tell you our, our client base would still buy them now in, in the right, in the right situation. So, uh, it's a, it's, and I, in my view, it's a win-win. It's a, it's a cost of capital that is better than certainly the current cost of common equity, um, for a shipping company. So it is a source of capital and it is a good, well-protected yielding instrument for, mm -hmm. 
uh, for investors. Going back to Omar's question, though, or, or statement about mutual funds, I, I'm less convinced. I, I think, honestly, having talked to, I don't know, many, many mutual funds over the last however 15 years, um, most of them have got, now gotten to the point where they say, I, I'm just not going to be at the front of the line. I'm just not going to be the smartest guy in the room on this. Uh, and if it's a trading business, I, I, I either have to be really dedicated to it or I'm out. And I think when they're out, they're out for good. Right. So, so Omar, then I guess, are you sort of saying that, that you could see, like if, if there were a management team who had some credibility and, and some liquidity in a particular sector, you think, um, you know, some type of diversification. Like, what, what would you say, is it along as far as like the C-SPAN guys um, and basically trying to make the pitch to say, we were a container leasing company, but what we really are is our asset allocators and trust us that we know how to allocate your capital into different asset classes at the right time. Is that, you know, is that what somebody has to be able to do to get the buy and hold money? Um, it's a, I think it's, I don't know if you have to go that extreme where it's completely two different businesses, but you know, it's always been taboo to have a Tenka company be part of a drive company, be part of an LNG company, part of LPG or containers. It doesn't, I don't think it hurts. The companies and the sectors aren't that huge so that when you become a quote unquote conglomerate, um, you sort of lose value or things just get lost in the shuffle. Um, I, I feel like you can have tankers together with dry bulk and you can move up and down with the cycles a bit more smoothly. And at the same time, sort of forego the, you know, the fact that, okay, we're always in the spot market. You know, the, the BLs are always spot, capes are always spot, have some contract business. And, and really, I think that's been, I think, missing that plus diversification that the mutual fund universe is 10 times the size of hedge funds. And so you, you, it's much stickier and they want to invest in companies where at least the management has a proven out strategy. Um, and I think that people want diversification. You know, me personally, if I'm going to buy and invest, you know, uh, or build a company, I don't want to have exclusivity to one asset because I could either make a bunch of uh, money or lose my shirt. I would rather have a bit more diversity. And I think mutual funds think that same way. So you, do you think, you think that if, if Frontline bought in Golden Ocean, it could be more interesting than Frontline on its own? Well, I guess it's, if you look at a company by company, it's a, it's a bit different, Hugh, because Frontline's long had this one and a half times, two times NAV evaluation. So for them, they may not necessarily need to do that, but other companies who are trading at big discounts to NAV consistently, yeah. maybe the market's telling us something. Um, I, let's, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I don't know if a company that trades at a big discount to NAV is because they don't have diversification, right? I can name three or four companies that have multiple sectors and multiple asset classes that traded massive discounts to NAV. Um, and I think if you're a mutual fund owner or a large investor, I don't think you have to find one company with six different subsector exposure, right? You can find four companies and the best in each class. Um, so I'll go with that. Um, what about the, the different companies out there? And some of you still, you know, cover them. Some of you have started to, I think, it had to expand your your coverage into other sectors, and so dropped a few of them. But again, they're they're quality companies whose equity market cap is a hundred million dollars, uh, call it, and 
um, you know, pick one that we respect a, a great deal, Ardmore, you know, and they've got a well-run, good management team. And so they, they've recently announced a, um, you know, a, a share buyback that, you know, on, on papers about, you know, 30% of their, of their market cap, if they were to, 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 to buy it all in, um, which I think is when you're at a discount is the responsible thing to do. But um, what, what's your view, anyone can jump in, of, you know, for these companies is, is, is that the path? And, and if so, should it just be a step to, to going private completely? Or what's, what is the, the path to be cut to be liquid and relevant while still treating investors, you know, properly and, and um, you know, giving them their capital back when it's the best use of that capital? And I give that to anyone. Jurgen, speak up. Or <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'd be happy to. So um, I, I think you're. I think you're focusing in on what's important here. Um, and as Randy said, I. Uh, I think an important part of being a, a valued shipping company these days, I think you need to have some market cap and liquidity in your stock in order to attract uh, a premium valuation as well compared to your NAV. I think you need to be a vehicle where investors can, um, you know, you don't necessarily need to buy into a finishly uh, or an already diversified portfolio of shipping as long as you have liquid stocks to play around with in the different sectors. I think that's just as well. But the the problem here is that that's really not the case, right? You have a lot of companies with very low market caps and low liquidity where the big mutual funds can't really, you know, get in and out uh, as, as the markets change and they do change quite rapidly. So uh, I'm not sure if, uh, I, I think you need to weigh uh, the buyback case because um, in theory, you know, buybacks, they to a large extent reflect the, the cheapest vessel you sort of can buy with your, your capital. But on the other hand, you're sort of digging your own grave to a degree by by just uh, you know limiting market cap in the company and, and liquidity as well. And I think that's uh, something to think about. And yeah, you need to weigh up against the the advantage of having uh, of having share buybacks as a, as a tool. Well, and Hugh, you in particular and at Ridgebury have made a point of saying that capital markets are sort of. Um, um, counterintuitive or, or react in the opposite direction of what you would expect in a period of weakness. Uh, nobody wants to buy any equity. Well, that's probably the best time to buy ships. And so that's the advantage of being private is that you don't have to care what your share price is. You can invest when you should invest. Um, and uh, and I would agree with the organ. One of the, one of the challenges is, especially if you're a smaller company, if you, you reduce the size of your company, um, it, it makes it that much harder to attract incremental capital, even even when things normalize. And I think one of the things that you can go back and look at over time is that once a company gets into the painted into this should trade at a discount to nav box, it's really, really hard to break out of that. And conversely, you can look at somebody like Frontline and for, you know, decades, they've been trading at a premium to nav and it, you know, it goes up and down with the market. But um, one of the things that's been consistent there is there is a lot of liquidity in that, in that stock. And so um, it's a, it's a much harder problem to fix, <laughs> unfortunately for a lot of these people uh, than, than it is to create. Um, all right, let's, uh, 
maybe let's let's jump back into to macro. Uh, as I said, I think you know there have been um, just I just heard the you know the, the panel that Randy was was hosting, and I and I think you know the consensus there is going through a uh, uh, a tough you know a, a tough period of unprecedented demand destruction this year. And we will see a normalization, and a you know, and that'll that'll come, you know, come back. And there's some debate as to exactly when we get back to 2019 levels of um, oil demand, which you know flows through. I think also matches economic activity in certain areas. Um, and that's there's debate around that timing. Long overshadowing that all is this the long term um, discussion around. Uh, you know, peak demand for for oil. Um, how do how do you? I mean, Randy, you sit there in in Houston, and so I think that's actually probably a, a valuable. You probably have more more people still making the case for oil than there might be up in Norway, for example. Even though Norway also depends on oil, <laughs> but they don't like to acknowledge that. Um, how, how how do you how do you see that playing out? And do you think that as an industry, when we've had trouble always with overbuilding in in a gradually growing market, how the industry can adjust um, into a, sh a shrinking market? Yeah, you know that's a good question. We've seen uh, BP come out and possibly say that peak oil was last year. Uh, we've seen the IEA yesterday say that four Q twenty one demands still going to be below 4Q19 demand. So um, it probably is, I don't know if it's shrinking from 2019 levels and that's, that's going to be the high, that's going to be the peak. I, I don't agree with that, but it's certainly going to be a slow grind higher um, and then a gradual decline, right? And what year is peak? Is it 25? Is it 30? I don't know. Um, that said, yes, it, I think the bigger picture in terms of tankers at least isn't necessarily the the volumes, which obviously that that drives a lot of the uh, the ships and the rates, but also the ton mile demand, right? So where are those barrels being sourced? Where are those barrels being used and refined, um, and then shipped from there to an end user? So even in a kind of global demand or, or even production, however you want to look at it, of 100 million barrels a day, maybe we don't get there again. Um, maybe we do, and we peak at 102, 105, whatever the number you want to say. Um, you don't necessarily have to have just volumes go straight up into the right uh, to see an increase in the ton mile demand, which is the bigger driver for the tanker sector. Um, but that said, yeah, you're, you're certainly seeing a bigger push into LNG and other bridge fuels. Um, and, and we are more long-term structurally bullish on LNG um, than coal, uh, obviously, or even crude oil for that matter. Um, but in the near term, and again, I, I use near term, five years, right? Uh, you can still be pretty bullish on tanker ton of mile demand, regardless of if you were, think that de global crude demand is going to get to 105 million barrels or not. Now, has, has any of you guys significantly changed your LNG thesis in the, in the past, um, you know, call it sort of six months, not, not, sec not just short term or secular, but a little bit longer term, because it, as an outside observer, it, it feels like it's lost a little bit of its of its place as a as a core fuel as the world seems to start to look you know at these much more aggressive goals around 2050, and the fact that you know, it seems at least to me there's been just this explosion in interest around green hydrogen and other things and 
is is LNG in, in in your view? Does it still have the same, you know, the same sort of uh, growth profile and use profile? Um, again, I'm, I, I'll just throw it to uh, to to any of you who. It's the question, I guess. First of all, has any of you really changed your changed your view around LNG? Well, um, I can respond to that. Uh, the, definitely, it is interesting. The past twelve months, how LNG has come a real long way, how it was part of the energy transition. And, and now it's been lumped in with, with oil. And, um, and and it's interesting to see that. I think a lot of people saw that coming, but it wasn't yet happening in practice. Um, what we have seen over the past, say, nine months, really since maybe the beginning of this year, is the decoupling of LNG and oil prices. Uh, and so for the longest time, um, LNG prices were really uh, mirroring that of oil. But for the past, uh, really since January, February, uh, they moved in different directions. So now the, the, the BTU intensity uh, price adjustment for LNG is much lower um, than where oil is. And so it has impacted a lot of long-term uh, projects. Um, you know, there's still a lot of projects in the Gulf Coast here over the next couple of years that don't seem impacted. Uh, Qatar still has a lot of projects in the medium term that look uh, uh, set to move forward. But beyond that, it is a question because it's um, – that that decoupling from oil has uh, really impacted the, uh, the sector. So we've, we've taken us, uh, we've dialed back our, our growth forecast from what we had before, but the near term or using Randy's long term horizon of five years, it looks pretty promising still. I, I'll uh, I'll say, I you know I think from my view, if anything, I'm more encouraged for the next ten years, honestly. <laughs> Uh, if you look at Europe, for instance, in September, European gas consumption was up 3% year over year. Electricity demand was down like 3%. So the the gaining of market share by natural gas is happening despite the pandemic. Um, I, I do think that it is becoming, uh, uh, maybe LNG as a bridge fuel was not part of the conversation six months or a year ago. And now I think increasingly there are people saying, okay, well, it's, it's a, it's a bridging fuel to a hydrogen economy or something else. And so I think from that perspective, and I, I even tend to agree a little bit. And frankly, I, I can see at least six months ago, I would have said, well, LNG is going to be the ship fuel, the bunker fuel of the future. Right now, I'm not so sure. Um, and so uh, I, I think it's changing on the, for me, my view is changing on the periphery and maybe applications. But, uh, but if anything, honestly, the absolute level of consumption, I, I think could exceed what I was thinking prior. I'd also just add to that really quickly that LNG still, I don't have the exact number, but I think it represents maybe 9% of actual natural gas consumption. And so there's still a, a lot of that building that you will come uh, type of uh, type of action plan space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, and and Jurgen, what what's your what's your view um, out of out of Norway? And you guys have a lot of you you've raised a lot of capital over there for you know speculative LNG projects. For um, you know, there's been a sort of a lot of enthusiasm for some of the different technologies, and and people have actually been able to raise. You know, high net worth money. There is. Do you see things things changing with the way investors view it? Yeah, my perception is that uh, the the view on LNG has uh, gone maybe a bit more away from the transition 
path that uh, I think a lot of investors uh, on our end were talking about uh, before the the crisis. Um, so, but but I just like to highlight, you know, it's it's easy to be skeptical to fossil fuels in a world where demand is as it is right now at half mast and there's surplus capacity of energy everywhere. I think it's easy to get a bit. Uh, run a bit ahead of yourself. Um, and uh, I think the fact of the matter is that uh, there are a lot of people in this world who, who perhaps not are willing to, you know, be put back in living standards uh, in order to achieve such a rapid change that perhaps is something that's viewed more from, uh, you know, at least from Scandinavia. I think everyone has this view that this is, needs to happen very fast. I don't think that view necessarily is the same if you go into the different Asian economies. So I think there needs to be some middle ground and uh, transition first uh, before you have uh, the capacity to make uh, uh, a complete transition to, to, to something that's uh, completely renewable. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'd agree that the pecking order still kind of is coal, oil, and then gas. Um, so, so, so I continue to be quite bullish, actually, on, on LNG, uh, having uh, had a, a good look at that during this summer. Yeah. Um, I, I, just as we, so moving, moving beyond that and really to, to the future, uh, you know, I think we, we all sometimes get a little bit tired of just counting order books and, and you know, Day rates and and the uh, you know the commodity end, uh, and sometimes something a bit exciting comes along. I remember about a year ago, a, an analyst was talking, and he had just met the team at New Fortress Energy and thought they were doing all sorts of really exciting things, and was you know really jazzed up about them. And you know their their stock price seems to have run very very well, even as they've reinvented themselves a little bit. Um, are there does any of you have anything you can think of like that? Something that really fits in. In with our sector that's that is maybe something still a little bit undiscovered a little bit you know what might come next even if it's perhaps not quite not something you could cover or your 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 firm could really raise the money for but you've 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 seen the team or the pitch or or things is there is there something that kind of excites any of you um that you just like to see like to see uh you know make it well i've got one um, so it was the last week, uh, we did a conference call with, uh, Alexander Severis from CMB who they're, they're doing hydrogen and, and, uh, but more specifically, and as it relates to shipping, they're talking about, uh, green ammonia as a bunker fuel, um, which is an interesting idea. I think it's, it, it, it has some ground to cover to get down to uh, being economic. But, uh, but I think at the moment, if you could, if you put green in front of the word energy, you go from being unpopular to the most popular person in the room. And, uh, and I think it, there are a lot that, especially as it relates to hydrogen, um, there is many billions of dollars being thrown at ideas. Some of those are going to work. Most of them probably won't work or at least work well enough. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, if, if somebody can economically make green ammonia work and produce it in Namibia or Morocco or Chile or someplace and, and refleet the global, um, shipping business with, with zero carbon, Hey, I'm, I, I think that's tremendously exciting. Uh, separate, uh, separate yet related, uh, what's going on with Scorpio? Volker. 
with the with the transition away uh, or transition into the uh, wind turbine installation. Uh, that's that's an exciting uh, path that they've, they've undertaken here. That over the next three years, they'll become an owner of one of the, the world's best and, and, uh, and, and most powerful uh, wind turbine vessels. So they, you know, they're they're at a unique point where they're taking their dry bulk vessels. They trade at a big discount to NAV. They're monetizing them, taking the cash and using that as the uh, uh, down payments for this ship. So it'll be interesting to see how how the company develops here over the coming couple of years. Yeah, uh, it will be interesting to see. It will be. <laughs> um, great. Well, I see. I see Nick popping up here. Um, do we uh, need to wrap it up, Nicholas, or five more minutes? Or? I'm afraid that we are at the limit now. If you want to take a okay. minute, that would be fine. But Sorry, I missed the chat box that, uh, <laughs> that came. But <laughs> you know, I uh, I always I always love a conversation where you start to forget that you're. You know, of course, you can't see the audience. That you're an audience, and you're just talking with some people whose uh, opinions you like to uh, you like to hear. So, guys, I really I, I, I appreciate it a lot. I think you uh, you know, you threw in some some uh, some things for for people to think about, and uh, and uh, I, I I do hope we uh, if we get back together a year from now, we're maybe at that point where when I ask you, can you jump in with both feet on a five year call that you all uh, you're all pounding the table. Sure. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you to everybody for a great panel. Really, this has been tremendous. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you.